Hello and welcome to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Coming up on today's show, I'm going to be talking about the recent Exo Cup, the winners, the losers and the statistics. Andrew will be chatting with our special guest, Jesse Christensen, and he will cover the goings on in Exoplanet News. So stay tuned. But first, let's introduce our Exocast family. I'm Hannah Wakeford and I study the atmospheres of exoplanets using space telescopes and trying to understand what they're made of. I'm Hugh Osborne, I'm postdoc in South France and I'm studying PLATO, which is a new transit hunting or exoplanet hunting transit survey satellite. Uh, and I'm Andrew Rushby, uh, a postdoctoral astrobiologist at the University of California, Irvine, where I study the climate of small worlds in the galaxy. Excellent. How's everything been going? It's been uh, a busy month and we had uh, two of us in America had holidays, Thanksgiving holiday. So how, how was everything over in California, Andrew? Well, it's, uh, it's actually been a pretty quiet month, uh, travel-wise at least. Uh, as you said, you know, there's some holidays, but uh, as December's just approaching, I'm, I'm thankful for the lack of travel this month anyway. Um, but it's been pretty productive for me in terms of getting my new project set up at a new institution. It always takes a little while to to you know um get things spun up so to speak and i'm in a i'm in a department filled with cosmologists who work on parsec redshift billions of solar mass type scales uh so i've learned a lot about galaxies and you know we're hoping to expand our group and develop some new collaborations it's exciting times yeah very different from the little habitable earths that you normally like to study yeah and actually i'm paid to do research now instead of just management as well so it's i'm enjoying it i'm enjoying it (laughs) What about you, Hugh? Uh, how's things in France? Yeah, fine. It's one of those months where I can't really tell you what I've spent it doing. Ooh, I don't know if you sounds, guys have that those months. That sounds secretive, <laughs> though. Proprietary. No, no, no. What I mean is, I can't tell you what what I've been doing because I don't really know myself. You know? <laughs> can't can't quite remember what happened yesterday. Let alone yeah, the that's, past that's month. been my month. It's just been kind of uh, yeah, slogging away. So I, nothing to report. There's always something. I'm always seeing pictures from Hugh just to trekking around the south of France having fun so wouldn't mind some of that yeah but that's just a standard week I don't remember that you know <laughs> you've had snow on the east coast right uh we did have snow but it was for like a single day of snow and it was really unexpected so none of the roads were salted at all so it was just a bit of a mess for a single day and then it just went away again uh so it's kind of pathetic really maybe maybe in the new year we'll have some more persistent snow where they'll be prepared for it but no it was just just one day and it's not that bad at the moment to be honest kind of kind of boring uh it was a cold thanksgiving but other than that it's just standard it's baltimore's so british it's just british weather so it's not hannah i i strongly disagree with that it was like 40 degrees there when i was last in in baltimore oh you were here in the summer okay well the summer's different (laughs) the summer's hideous never come here in the summer only invite people you hate here in the summer why people why do people live there (laughs) i don't know they don't not comfortably (laughs) well i think it's time we moved on to to the first section so um andrew do you want to introduce our special guest absolutely it would be my pleasure to um introduce dr 
Jessie Christensen, who is our, our guest this month. Uh, she is uh, the Deputy Science Lead at the NASA Exoplanet Archive and also a Research Scientist at the NASA Exoplanet Science Institute, also known as NEXI. Uh, so uh, Dr. Christensen is an expert on exoplanet detection, population statistics, um, like planet occurrence rates, for example, uh, as well as being a prolific and effective science communicator and burning up the GIF game on Twitter. So uh, welcome to the show, Jessie. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. And Andrew, you live in Southern California. You can't give Hannah crap about Baltimore weather. Like 40 degrees is where it starts in Southern California. I've only been here since October and it's been like 20 degrees every day. It's, uh, it's oh, yeah, man. been nice. You have a delight coming in summer. Can't wait. <laughs> I've got air conditioning. It's fine. I'll just, I'll just live in here hermetically sealed into my apartment. <laughs> That's right. Um, okay. So uh, for, for listeners out there who aren't uh, that familiar with, uh, with your re- work or research, would you mind just uh, summarizing very, very briefly your research? interests a little bit? Sure, yeah. So uh, I worked for a long time on the NASA Kepler mission, uh, which was uh, one of the first big space missions that went and found a lot of planets. Uh, It was really exciting because before Kepler launched, we didn't know how common planets are, and Kepler showed us that planets are everywhere. uh, And I was one of the people that got to work on that, which is very exciting. It was an amazing opportunity. Uh, And now I work on the NASA TESS mission. And I was going to ask, when is this going to air, this this podcast? Next week, probably. Yeah, probably next week. Okay, so... By the time you hear this, the first two sectors of data from the test spacecraft will be publicly available, which is really exciting. We're all really, really, yeah, we're all really keen to see what the community will do with the actual data. Um, So, yes, this is coming to you live. There will be test data when you hear this. Wow. Okay, well, um, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, archives and catalogs then. So um, you work at the uh, the Exoplanet Archive, and you know, scientists out there, if you work in this field, you've probably stopped by the Exoplanet Archive at some point or used their data products, and you have Jesse and others to thank for that. So, Jesse, um, why do you think it's important to maintain that kind of public database of known exoplanets and candidate planets? You know, what benefits does it bring to science community, the public? Sure, that's a great question. There are actually three major exoplanet archives, and probably more that I'm not thinking of. But um, and each each archive has its own criteria for what counts, what gets into the archive. That was actually my next so, question. Like, what? Why do they differ right, so much? And, yeah, and 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 each archive is really answering to a different audience. Uh, so we are NASA's official exoplanet archives. So our criteria are the are, are among the strictest. It, the planet the, the planets that we put in have to appear in refereed publications. Uh, they need to be le- less than thirty Jupiter masses, which is pretty big. But a lot of the masses that people measure up around that range have huge error bars. So we're trying to make sure we capture everything that can conceivably turn out to be a planet. Um, and so, yeah, so we have kind of strict criteria. So the, the European exoplanet encyclopedia, for instance, um, they, they are much more comprehensive. They almost always have more planets in them than we do because they accept much more, you know, submitted things, conference proceedings, planets that have just been announced by professional astronomers without the publication process. So if you want a more comprehensive list of planets or potential planets, then the European Exoplanet Encyclopedia is more where you should go. Uh, if you want a more curated list, uh, then you would go to Exoplanet Archive. If you want the most highly curated list, so someone has actually gone through and, you know, one by one chosen which planets would go in, you go to exoplanets.org. So that's the one um, that Jason Wright started, uh, and uh, that's very much a highly curated, they've selected which planets they want to have in there because they're really interested in follow-up. They're interested in going measuring the masses of these planets, so they want the best candidates for going and doing that. So that's kind of the differences between the three. 
I just think I had a quick look at all three this morning, and there's about 250 planet difference between between the archives. Um, and I guess you know that that variation is explained by those those different criteria. So you know, thanks for thanks. Yeah, for so that's about a five to ten percent variation, mm-hmm. given the total number is close to four thousand. Yeah. Okay, that seems fair. So um, we've uh, often repeated on the show, uh, kind of segueing from that to you know more about population statistics. I guess we've often repeated on the show that you know Kepler itself was a a survey mission, right? It wasn't necessarily about discovering independent planets or planetary systems. Um, it was more about the distribution of those planets. So in terms of the representative survey with with like completeness and the pipeline stuff all taken into account, uh, do you think that the inferences that we can now make from that sample is is representative of the wider population? Do you think we got an accurate snapshot from Kepler? I think we got an accurate snapshot of planets bigger than about two Earth radii around sun-like stars out to periods of two to three hundred days. Fantastic caveats. I'm going to draw. <laughs> I'm going to draw a very specific box that I think we did well in. Uh, but outside of that box, you know, here be dragons. You can extrapolate, and people do, but you know, that's where you get dangerous. Right. And that's maybe where TESS comes in, right? Because it's a similar mission with the population survey primarily, um, and those planets are starting to emerge now. So, how do you think the the TESS uh, field will change that parameter space a little bit? Well, so it's interesting you say that. TESS is not a statistics mission, and this is basically Dave Latham's mantra. Every time I try in the last few years to help TESS make decisions that would make statistics easier after the fact. The pushback is always, TESS is not a statistics mission. Dave Latham has said that to me about 500 times at this point. So TESS has a very different primary goal. Uh, One of the exciting things that Kepler found is that most planets that we find out there are between the size of Earth and Neptune. And that's really interesting because we don't have anything in our solar system in that size range, so we don't know much about these planets. We don't know where they stop being big rocks and start being little ice balls. But that's where TESS comes in. TESS is designed to find small planets around nearby stars. So it's doing a survey of all of the bright nearby stars, almost the entire sky in the first two years, to find all of the nearby small stars. The problem with the Kepler sample is that all those stars are very far away and usually too faint for us to go and do more observations. But TESS... TESS is looking at much brighter stars. So TESS will help us map out in mass and radius the size distribution between Earth and Neptune and really help us work out, like, how do we pinpoint formation mechanisms? How do we pinpoint what influences density? Like, where does, does how much does the star play? How much role does the star play in determining whether something keeps its atmosphere or not? All these really super interesting questions in this size range that Kepler really opened our eyes to but didn't really let us explore much. So TESS isn't doing statistics, but it is really going to answer some exciting questions about these planets that we found with Kepler. Oh, great, great. Well, great. For, thank you for, for clarifying that. That's, uh, that's certainly on me. And I, we've certainly, well, I know I have lamented on several occasions on Exocast the fact that we don't have a super Earth slash mini Neptune in our solar system, how awesome it would be. Um, because, you know, I, I, just this week, actually, I was at a meeting here at UC, UCI, we're thinking about collaborations. And I said that one of the, I think anyway, one of the most important questions right now is that mass radius relationship. You know, what, what, where... Where is the boundary, as you, as you said, between the ice balls and the the gas giants? Uh, and I think that's going to be sure. you know, that's going to be certainly from the modelling side of things as well. That's that's the the area of interest for us uh, at the moment. I think. Uh, so Jesse, uh, let's, let's 
change tack uh, a little bit, if that's okay with you. Uh, I was going to talk a little bit about citizen science, actually, if that's okay. Um, and specifically, you recently published a paper on K2-138, uh, which is a super interesting system, maybe five or six planets, right, in this, this really nice... Uh, uh, perfect resonance or near perfect resonance um, and this this system was originally discovered or found on stargazing life on the ABC which is in Australia and if you're if you listen to this in Britain you're probably familiar with stargazing life there um, but this this system was discovered like kind of live on TV type thing uh, with the help of the exoplanet explorer citizen science project so uh, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, the system and the, and the process of kind of employing citizen science in in exoplanet work is this the future of uh, of big data astro is it crowdsourced sure this is a really fun topic for me so the reason our collaboration which was working on k2 k2 is the the sequel to the kepler mission using the kepler spacecraft to look for more planets we started thinking about citizen scientists, citizen scientists being involved because the rate at which K2 data were coming down from the spacecraft and needing to be reduced and looked for planet candidates and followed up and, and papers written was outpacing our ability to keep up, essentially. Uh, and we knew about Planet Hunters, which was a citizen science project using the original Kepler mission that Deborah Fisher had set up. Now, with Planet Hunters, they put the light curves up, just the raw light curves, well, calibrated but not folded or anything, just the whole entire light curve, and invited citizen scientists to look for dips, the dips that are caused by transiting planets. So we took a slightly different approach, which was we ran our software on the data coming down from K2 as it came down and found candidates. We found periodic dips. We found things in the light curve that could potentially turn out to be planet candidates. Now, if you've ever tried to do this yourself, 90% of the things you find are junk. But you spend a lot of time going through that huge list of thousands of things to weed out the good stuff. So that's where we figured we could use help uh, because it's very easy to train someone how to do that. You show them some junk dips and then you show them some real dips and you're like, look, just tell us which ones are real. Uh, and it's very, it, it's very straightforward. Uh, it takes like five minutes before someone's basically an expert. Um, no PhD so required. We, what we did was... <laughs> exactly. Um, so what we did was upload all of these candidates and say, let us find the good ones. Um, and so we would had this little slow release on Zooniverse, which is the platform that hosts a lot of these citizen science projects. And we'd had a few people get involved. And then we had this really lucky break, as you said, of getting invited to be on live television in Australia. Um, so that really, obviously, what you need to get a citizen science project going is exposure. You need citizens to see it and get excited and get involved. Um, so we were so lucky. Uh, on the first night, it's a three-night program, three nights of live astronomy. I mean, it's such an exciting opportunity for people to see real astronomers doing stuff. Uh, on the first night, we kind of advertised the project and we said, here's what you have to do. Go off and find something exciting. Uh, and then the producers were like, we want to announce something on the third night. Like, find something that they found that we can it's announce on the third night. And disconnect. we were like, well, that's, yeah. Not really, <laughs> yeah, that's not really how science works, but we'll see what we can do. And of course, what they really wanted was a habitable planet. And it was like, yeah, so do the Don't rest we of all. us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, so the first thing I, I, you know, I was going, I basically didn't sleep for two days. I was going through the data as it was coming in, as people were classifying. Um, and I was looking for something exciting. And I went back to them on the second night and I was like, look, here's a hot, here's a Jupiter sized thing in the habitable zone that might have a moon. You know, that could be, you could sell that like a Pandora style thing. That would be exciting. And they were like, yeah, no, not really. Uh, try again. So I went back and we have this, um, we actually have the Slack discussion where Gert Berenson and I were like talking about what we could do. And I'm like, why don't we find a multi-planet system? Uh, because they're basically self-validating. And what that means is if you see multiple periodic signals on the same target, 
the chances of it being junk or some other kind of astrophysical false positive go way down. Like you need some chance alignment of multiple eclipsing binaries along the line of sight or something in order to recreate that. And the much more likely scenario is it's a star with multiple planets around it. Uh, and Gert was like, okay, fine. Uh, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to go make a cup of tea. 10 minutes later, Gert comes back and I'm like, I have one. Here it is. It's got four planets around it. No one's found it yet. It's one of the brand new light curves from campaign 12. Uh, should we go with this? And then basically everybody in the Slack channel was just like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, within 10 minutes of deciding this, we had pulled out this really exciting system. And then as Andrew was saying, one of the things that's really cool about the system is that it's close to resonance, which means that uh, the periods of the planets are all related to each other. Uh, in, in fact, what it is, is the innermost planet goes around three times and then the next planet goes around twice in the same amount of time. Now, for every three times that second planet goes around, the next planet, the third planet, goes around twice. And for every three times the third planet goes around, the fourth planet goes around twice. Uh, so it's actually this chain of uh, first order mean motion resonances, which is really cool uh, and tells us interesting things about how the system could have formed. It's, it's really hard to have a very chaotic formation process with the planets are, like bouncing all around and interacting with each other and still end up in this like perfect chain of unbroken resonances. So the system's really cool. Uh, and as Andrew alluded to, we've actually identified two more planets around the system in the meantime. So we know it has six planets now. The, one of them is on the same chain of resonances, so there's five planets in this chain. And then the sixth one, which is a bit further out, looks like it's not on the chain anymore. So we don't, unfortunately, have six in an unbroken chain, but five is still, I think, the record. It's pretty cool anyway. Can you get the masses from that, that nice resonance that you've got there? Ah, that's an excellent question, Hannah. I, I put in a big Spitzer proposal to try and look for transit timing variations. Excellent. Uh, but it was quite expensive. Uh, and I didn't get selected, ah, unfortunately. Spits of competition was very high. Yes. Um, so uh, there's still a chance with TTVs. I don't know whether you've talked about um, KOPS on the Exocast yet, the, the European mission which is going to do transit follow-up. Yeah, yeah, we mentioned it. Um, but yeah. they, yes. So this, this mission, KOPS, which is going to launch in the next decade, will have an opportunity to measure the transit timing variations which are just deviations from exact periodicity of these planets caused by the fact that they do tug on each other a bit because they're close to resonance. And we can use those to infer the mass. Um, it's also relatively bright. So there's a possibility of RVs. And I've been talking to some of my European collaborators about it. But, you know, there's a lot going on because it's five, six smallish planets. It's a lot of very entangled signals because of the resonance. It's basically, a, you know, it's a radio velocity nightmare. I believe Chaos has got a launch date for next year, sometime in the late summer as well. So that's uh... yeah, we should chat about it at some point. Yeah. Oh, 2019. Oh, that's sooner than I thought. Yeah. Well, what's the period of the furthest out planet, or the 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 period yeah. of the furthest out planet is 42 days. So it's six planets all within 42 days. And recall, if you will, that Mercury, which is the closest planet to the Sun in our solar system, it has a period of 88 days. So this is six planets all packed within half the period of Mercury. Okay, well, uh, thank you again for joining us for this particular segment. We're not letting you go anywhere just yet, though, uh, as we'll be hearing about your adopted planet at the end of the show. So obviously the biggest news of the last month was uh, was ExoCup, the galaxy's best exoplanet competition. Uh, and it threw up a, a number of surprises uh, and upsets, and I think a really interesting result. So here to tell us a little bit more about that is, uh, is Hannah Wakeford. So back by popular demand this year was the Exo Cup. We ran this 
for the first time in 2017 following a very popular minerals cup that was uh, is hosted on Twitter through different polls. And what it is, just to, to bring people up to speed if you don't know about it, is a Twitter-based poll competition, a knockout competition between a number of exoplanets that battle each other until the final champion emerges right at the end. And uh, the, the point of this, obviously there's, there's got to be a point. What is the point of the Exo Cup? Well, it is to get the eternal fame and admiration of a species of humans, little kind of evolved primates on a distant terrestrial planet. So which of the planets got there this year and how did we run the cup? So we started with 16 exoplanets, popular planets, planets that had appeared recently in the literature, planets that had been part of the exocast family in the past, planets that had been part of the cup last year in, in 2017 to join us again in 2018. And we ran a butterfly style uh, face-off, which consisted of two different brackets. One bracket for the transiting exoplanets, so these planets are the ones that pass in front of their stars, and we can learn a fair amount about them, including some characterization. And then we've got the non-transiting bracket, which is everything from radial velocities to white dwarf planets and gravitational lens planets and directly imaged planets. So a huge host of science being crammed into that one bracket there. But a, a big variation in the types of planets that we can talk about. And in each of these brackets, we had those, those face-offs. So at the end, the final would be between a transiting planet and a non-transiting planet. And that was something that was brought up last year that the, the audience kind of wanted to get that competition going. Because last year in the final for 2017, we had two transiting planets that went head to head. And this time it really guaranteed a variety of the science that we could talk about in that final. So we ran a poll each day. So every single day we had another poll for this knockout competition. And the final winner that emerged from this uh, had beaten out the rest of its competition all the way down to the last. And I'm just going to give you a, a couple of numbers on here uh, and then go into what that means uh, and how we kind of try to really engage with the audience. So our final winner was the ultra hot transiting planet. So transiting planet one again. Even though we tried very hard to make sure that there was some kind of balance there. I don't it know was. how we get around that. There was. Did you, Hannah? I yeah, did. No, Come true. on. Look at the votes. It was like <laughs> it was balanced. In fact, we had most people talking about the non-stranding planets in terms of the science. But but Kelt 9, this this ultra, ultra hot Jupiter won. And it was a really big battle in the final between this, this transiting planet Kelt 9 and a directly imaged planet PDS 70, which is forming, currently forming and accreting in its disk. And what I think is really, really cool is that that was an unexpected winner in that non transiting bracket. Yeah, and basically people really got planet, behind right? it. And it did so well. Right. It came second place. Imagine, imagine how well it'll do when it's fully formed in like two million years. In at Exocup, two million in two, it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna take it. <laughs> And and it, and of course, in Exo Cup two million and two, the winner won't exist anymore because it'll have been eaten by its star. So, well, got a better chance there. If it's around a, a red, a nice little red dwarf star, then it will still be existing. Way well, Kelt Kel Nine's Kelt Nine's got like uh, hundreds of thousands of years before it's eaten. Oh yeah, so. Kelt Nine is around an A star. It's going. It's a uh, live young 
radiate fast yeah. die young <laughs> yeah exactly it's gonna take out that planet like it was not even there and like i want to emphasize when you say ultra ultra hot if you lined up all of the objects in our galaxy from hottest to coldest this planet is in the top quartile the top 25 percent oh, yeah this is really really hot yeah it's an insanely hot planet it's four thousand kelvin and that doesn't mean much but let's just say that that is hotter than some stars that you can see in the sky and hotter than quite a few stars that we already know have planets around them so it's a it's a corker uh i don't i don't know how else to put that <laughs> um so over the, the whole of the cup, we, we keep track of how many votes we get, how many engagements we get and retweets and everything. And I, that's a really important part of this is the really getting that public engagement in place and making sure that that science is being shared because we're, we're talking about 16 different planets. They all have, teach us something new. They've all got something else that's unique about them. And that's the really fun part is being able to talk about that and, and share the ways in which we learn those. So... There were some really, really good tweets and some really good campaigns for, for some of these planets. And, you know, some of the ones that had some good campaigns didn't even make it through the first round. They couldn't even make it through their first battle. So it is a popularity contest in the end, um, but aren't all polls. But I think some of the, the really cool stuff that we learned and, and the things that I was really excited about, I don't know about you guys, was these non-transiting planets. The, this bracket that we had, we had such a variety of types of planets in there. And I think that that got a lot of attention, that got a lot of people asking questions. Certainly when we had Kepler-17c, which is a planet that was de detected with these TTVs that we were talking about earlier. And that system has three different planets in it, all detected with three different methods. And I think that that, that one had lots of people talking about it. And it was really interesting to see the ways that people were communicating that and, and how it was important. Um, but in terms of the votes, you know, the polls that had the most votes, they all had Kelp 9 in them. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, so in every single round... Planet, clearly. <laughs> well, even if Kelp 9 didn't... like, So in the first round, Kelp 9 versus LHS 1140B, that had the most votes in the first round. But it was a 50-50 split at the end. Yeah, I was, so I was even, rooting for the Super Earths throughout this and my... Yeah, yeah, even when it was a close vote, and Kelt Nine, you know, made it through. Even when it was a close vote, there were there were more votes in those Kelt Nine polls. So I, th I find that interesting that it wasn't just a runaway. It wasn't just all of these Kelt Nine fans, you know, voting for it and pushing it up. There was a balance in in quite a few of the polls that it was in to show that it was just it was driving that competition, driving that science. So it was really nice to see it in there because of that, because you started to learn about the other planets it was competing against more as a, as a battle against it. So. Or maybe it was all of the direct imagers who saw Kelt Nine as a as a as a challenge, as a threat, and they thought, "Okay, we need of to vote against it." Of course, it's a cynical it. way of looking at this. <laughs> it's all about gaming the system. Yep, that's true. Uh, so, what we also saw this year, which was hinted at last year, was the emergence of exoplanet scientists on Twitter. And this year, we saw the emergence of Bruce McIntosh for the direct imaging side of things. Uh, and Scott Gowdy on the side of Kelt wow. Nine. Uh, he's tweeted like four times, right? <laughs> Every yeah. single tweet that he has on his Twitter account is about the Exo Cup. I th I th wow. 
I think so we can we, we got, can end it there, right? <laughs> <laughs> we, we got we got these kind of it was a great battle and great uh, way of sharing that information. I'm really glad that that those types of people got on board. And you know, it's it's good having uh, Jesse here because we had that last year as well. We had a lot of people who are deeply involved in that science as part of the cup. It, is that an important part of the communication? Do you find that this kind of thing is is fun and a good way of getting that information out there? Well, yeah. I mean, it's always good to have a new tool, right? You always need to keep it fresh and be doing something different. You can't just post every week, here's a new planet. <laughs> so having this mechanism and this game and this like way to make it interactive and a way to let people influence things, that's a really fantastic tool. And I like that you had Scott Gowdy come in this year because we had David Charbonneau last year, you know, heavily promoting GJ1214B. So between David Charbonneau and Scott Gowdy, you had the two people chairing the Exoplanet Survey Strategy Report. Like you had two huge names in Exoplanets involved in ExoCup. Like, that's a big draw. You should yeah, be let's, proud. Let's not forget Natalie as well, Natalie Battaglia, who, uh, of course, Kepler 10B won that's last right. year, uh, but it was knocked out in the first round. It was knocked out in the first round. Our defending round. champion. Yes. By a fresh new face from Tess. <laughs> True. So it, it's kind of like passing the baton, right? You know, or baton. Exactly. Exactly. It was the new Tess planet. It was very exciting. Yeah, I was disappointed it didn't make it through to the quarterfinal, even the, the Pymens AC. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think there was really a big push for the, the, I mean, giant planets this year really succeeded. And you know, I love seeing that. But I think it's because just how much, how, how rich the information is that we have for those and, and the things that we can learn from them. And I, I really appreciated people appreciating that um, because it's so hard to get across. Like these are giant planets. It's so hard to imagine what they're like. But having these extremes that we're talking about, it kind of grounds it a little bit even though it's even further from something you can imagine it, it grounds it in that oh wow this is this is new this is different how how can how does this exist and, and what are people doing to try and understand it so I, I felt like this was the year of the giant planets in the cup and that wasn't I mean, that wasn't intentional because there was a I you know we tried to make sure that there was a balance between the different sizes of planets that we had here and the, the different ways that we look at those planets so I'm a little bit surprised as well that some of those super earths didn't make it. Just to, just to mention before we go any further, we actually did talk about this uh, on the previous show, right? How we were selecting the planets, how we were going to set up the poll. And um, for, for folks listening out there, we really did put a, a lot of thought into making sure that this was as, as balanced as possible to make sure that we were representing not just, you know, the different ways of finding planets, but also that each planet gave us something interesting to, you know, to talk about, to add to the to the discourse so um yeah if you're interested in, in 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 knowing a bit more about why and how we chose those i think last last month's episode probably goes into it a little bit more detail um but also give us a break as well we're doing our best <laughs> we just can't choose them all we'd, we'd have we'd Listen, have more guys you do it then then i then we have a break it's been a really busy month it's absolutely exhausting monitoring your tweets and setting up polls and I do think probably 16 is better than 32. So last year we had around 32 and then around last 16. Last year almost killed me. Um, yeah, it was, it, was an emotional, <laughs> it was an emotional toil. Um, so, so, so I think 16 was, a, was a, good, a good number. I mean, to be fair, last year when we were running the cup, I was also moving here. So I was moving and we were doing the cup. So it might have been a combination of things that almost killed me. But this year wasn't any less stressful with 16. So I don't, I don't know if I ever want to go back to 32 planets. No, we'll do like eight. 
next year. And yeah, then okay, eventually it'll just be a, you just pick one or two. Seriously. Just like, no, this is the winner of the XA Cup. Just deal with it, okay? We're done. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I found interesting, you say this is the year of the big planet and a small planet last one, la- one last year, but they were both very, very hot. Like the hot planets yeah. seem to be the big takeaway winners here. Like a hot rock won the first one and a hot giant planet, like an ultra hot giant planet won the second one. Like are people really into hot things? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we're going to have to work out how we can test that. Uh... Do we have to split our, our brackets with hot planets and not hot planets next time to avoid yeah, that bias? <laughs> There's yeah. a bit of an observational bias. It's easy to find the hot things, right? So they're going to be, they're going to be there. One, one change from... Um, one change from last year as well is that where last year we had poet poems that were being used to influence votes, this year we had dogs, right? <laughs> That's true. We did have some tweets of dogs in that in the final. Like, don't make this puppy sad if you vote for, for this planet or, or something. I was slightly but, depressed we didn't have more poems, though, because those were great. I did enjoy the poems last year, yeah. Yeah, we, we had a couple at the beginning, people trying to put... Alex some, Tichy did one or two, yeah. Yeah, slam poetry together, but uh, <laughs> there was a couple for the Exo Moon candidate that, that went through that were quite interesting. But uh, overall, I think it was very quiet on the, the poetry side of things. It was really very much... It felt more serious. It felt like they were like, come on, we've got to, we've got to do this. But we did actually have an article written about the Exo Cup, um, Actually, we had multiple articles written about the Exo Cup. <laughs> One by Ohio State, which uh, is where Scott Gowdy is, uh, and for Count Nine being getting everybody to vote for for Count Nine and care about it more than the football game that they had coming up. So I think that that was an interesting choice on their part, considering how big American football is at Ohio State. For those who who don't know, it's it's ridiculous. It's one of the biggest, most competitive football colleges in the country. But um, I, I think it was it was serious, but there was also another quite serious thing going on at exactly the same time, and that was the midterm elections here. So while we were encouraging people to get involved democratically, uh, virtually, we were also trying to encourage people to actually go out and, and vote. And uh, Hannah and I, uh, we can't vote here in the US. No. Um, you know, we pay taxes, but no representation. There's some <laughs> irony there, something to do with tea. No, anyway, um, so, you know, we were... probably Jesse too, right? I don't know. Yes, I pay taxes and cannot vote. Oh, really? Yeah. Jesse, I thought you were a citizen. Oh, Rubbish. No, just a green card holder. Yeah. That's absolutely rubbish. So anyway, we were trying to encourage it. And it was, you know, it was quite a, a serious election, I guess. Um, but maybe people like the, like the uh, comic relief, the, the distraction. Yeah, the hopefully it was something that other people can use to relax, even if we can't. So I, I think it was good, and, and we'd love to hear feedback from everybody and anybody about the cup. What what do you love about the cup? What do you hate about it? What can we do to make it better next time? And and how can we really just engage with the science that's going on behind this? So we, we need to get everybody involved, and, and we'll make sure that we put together some kind of... Uh, Hugh was thinking about putting together some kind of criteria for what goes in, what planets go in the cup and see if we can hone that down a little bit more. But uh, Almost like some sort of pipeline that goes into an archive. With a pipeline and a code <laughs> of some kind that's doing some computer scooping and all of these fun <laughs> things that Hugh spent the summer uh, learning about with NASA up in California. So... Uh, <laughs> Hopefully next year, if it's back by popular demand again, we'll see what happens. Okay, so now it is time for the Exoplanet News. What, apart from the Exocup, has been happening in the literature? Well, 
every month there's a there's there's a lot of important discoveries but i thought i'd start with the, probably the biggest news that you've almost certainly heard about and that comes from barnard star so um one the, barnard star is one of our sun's closest neighbors it's uh, only further away than the uh, alpha and alpha sen system with the three stars there so it's kind of the next uh, solar solar system away from the sun and it's been searched for planets for for years, actually, all the way back to the 1960s, when there were false claims of planets around Barnard star, um, it's an M dwarf. But unlike Proxima, it's it's extremely quiet and old, and actually extremely fast moving. So within a, a few tens of thousands of years, Barnard star will be zipping away from us, our sun, and uh, and we won't be in a position to find planets around it at all. Um, but we have now 20 years worth of radial velocity data for this star, including hundreds of points in the, just the last two years with Carmenes, which is a spectrograph in Spain, and Harps, spectrograph in Chile and in the Canary Islands. So all of these thousands of data points allowed a signal at 233 days to rise out of the noise with an amplitude of about 1.2 meters per second. So, so I mean, 1.2 meters per second, that's literally slower than walking pace. So that's kind of, um, you get a, a feel for how exquisite this RV detection actually is. Um, and that small amplitude from the signal means that the planet itself is small with a minimum mass about 3.2 Earth masses. Um, so that suggests possibly it's, it's kind of a terrestrial composition or maybe there's some gas on the surface. However, it won't be anything like a habitable planet in the classical definition because although it orbits its star less than half the Earth-Sun distance, so about 0.4 AU, its star is a tiny M dwarf, meaning that its surface temperature lit by the light coming off its star is, um, is something like minus 170 degrees C, so much more likely to be an ice ball than an, a rocky sort of uh, water ball, unfortunately. But who knows, maybe there's something underneath the surface. There's a... There's there's time to check as well. One of the one of the great things about Barnard Star B is that it's so close and it's so far from its star that it's actually relatively easy to find with the next generation of big telescopes directly. So it, it's something like five times further from its star when you look at it with a telescope than Proxima. And there's already talk about observing Proxima directly with the new generation of telescopes. So there's certainly, in 10 years, we might be getting photons from the surface of Barnard star B. I did hear a suggestion that we should start calling it Barbie, which I'm, I'm, Barbie. I'm fine with. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's on Twitter. I guess Barnard B is probably what it would be called, because I, even with Proxima Centauri B, we've kind of dropped Centauri. And, we just say Proxima um, now, right? <laughs> yeah. If, when we get Proxima C, it's going to be confusing because everyone, everything will be called Proxima, and yeah. So, uh, staying with RVs, there were a couple of new planets from the GAPS survey on HARPS. I won't go for the names, but they they found a couple of new giant planets around Metalpore stars on kind of long orbits, and there were fifteen new planet signals uh, signals in RVs around subgiants made uh, by the California Planet Search on Earth. I don't know what on Palomar, I guess. Um, and moving from RVs to transits, we had a lot of new transiting planets this month. Um, there were three sort of ground-based hot Jupiters found, although Hats 70b is maybe debatable as to whether it's hot Jupiter or a brown dwarf because it's at 12.9 Jupiter masses, and the arbitrary line is is normally at like 13 Jupiter masses. So. Um, it's within error either side of that line, so I'm not sure what we call it. 
Um, and then a couple of WASP planets, WASP-190b and WASP-166b, both in the southern hemisphere, both around relatively bright stars. And you might wonder why are southern hemisphere transiting planet searches pushing out hot Jupiters? And the reason is, of course, TESS is hot on their heels. So TESS <laughs> will find these planets far quicker and easier than, than the ground-based surveys, such as WASP and HATS. So um, you, I would expect to see a lot of such planets being pushed out in the next few months. And we had the first uh, hot Jupiters out of TESS already this month as well. There was um, one called HD 2685b, uh, which is around an F-type star, ninth magnitude. And then there were two papers on the same object, a seventh magnitude uh, giant planet on an eccentric 11-day orbit around HD 1397, which is slightly confusing because there's an HD 3197, oh, which no. also hosts planets. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, and interestingly, these two these two papers on the same object get completely different masses for the Jupiter, and that's likely because the second paper by Brahm et al., as opposed to the Nielsen et al. paper, fits for two planets because they have better quality RVs and they can see a second planetary signal there. Oh, so they cool. get a, a higher mass. Um, so that's quite interesting. Normally, these these eccentric giant planets don't have um, companions that are very close, but this one seems like it might. Um, there was another interesting test paper this, this month that wasn't a planet, that was looking at an already detected planet, WASP-18. So these were just using um, measurements from TESS. They were able to look for the secondary eclipse, so when the planet passes behind the star. And I kind of thought with TESS, because it's such a small telescope, you're not going to be able to get good measurements of the secondary eclipses of many planets. Um, because there's the, a lot of noise in this in the system, but actually the the measurement of the phase curve and of of this eclipse of the planet behind the star is really really good. So it, it's something like 350 parts per million, which is a really small signal, but you can see it each time it happens, each of the five times it happens during the data. And they even managed to fit an albedo that says that the um, the planet is only about six percent reflective in optical, which is pretty pretty low. You know, there's a pretty a black a black planet. And there was another paper this month about how many potential radial velocity planets TESS might uh, luckily spot transiting. So um, most of these RV planets aren't going to transit because they kind of have a random orbit. But something like 12 planets that we know have that we know are around stars that TESS is going to monitor will transit, and TESS will be able to measure the radius of these planets. Although only a handful of those are unknown so most of those will be transits of planets that we already know transit and um and that'll be quite interesting that that's kind of what the point of chaos is as well so so it's a little bit worrying if tess is going to kind of mop up the planets that chaos is is wanting to to observe itself next year when it launches but we'll see um there were three new planets from microlensing two of which are free floating planets both from the Ogle survey, those ones. So just as a bit of an aside, is, is, is the only way to find um, free-floating planets with uh, microlensing? I guess there's no other and way. And direct to... imaging. Ah, of course. Yeah, but yeah. you have to know where to... But only for, like, local. For that. Yeah. It's normally found through, like, um, brown dwarf surveys and M-star surveys to, because they're just young, hot things that have been, yeah, still self-compressing. But it's hard to get them below that mass boundary. There was an interesting search for exocomets in the Kepler data. So Grant Kennedy et al. looked for uh, or developed an automated search algorithm to try and find these transiting comets around exoplan exo 
exoplanet systems. And they found five, which included four of the known systems already around um, F-type stars, and, a, and a, a third system, a third star that seems to have these, these comet um, features around it called HD 182952. And interestingly, all three of these stars that have comets around them are, are F-type stars in old clusters that are about um, 100 million years old. So um, it's quite interesting that, that only this type of star has have comets found around them. So, so there must be some theoretical reason that, that comets are so frequent in these um, these these clusters, and there was a paper from Rodrigo Luger, which was on a, a new way of, of kind of measuring light curves called Starry. And so, basically, in transiting exoplanet science, we measure a single thing, one sphere crossing another sphere. Um, so, in this technical paper, basically, he came up with a new way of calculating the flux coming from stars, planets, moons, or any kind of sphere when they get eclipsed by other things. Except rather than doing it like using geometrical and numerical shortcuts as what we kind of do at the moment, he did all this purely mathematically and including things like spherical harmonics, which would able, enable you to kind of measure the surface maps of exoplanets like uniquely with this mathematical function rather than doing any sort of uh, geometrical stuff. And, and it does it all about seven magnitudes faster than, than the current algorithms we use for things like um, transits and eclipses, and also more accurately. So this is kind of, in the future, how we're going to be doing these ultra-precise um, transit and eclipse measurements. So it's quite an interesting uh, theoretical paper there. R Rodrigo is, is on it, <laughs> that guy. I know. <laughs> Such great output. So often in exoplanetary science, an interesting or unexplained statistical correlation in the population of exoplanets we have tends to usher in a new understanding of how planets form and evolve. So the so-called uh, evaporation valley is, did this for the evolution of small planets. Um, but there was a paper on archive last month that kind of could possibly do the same. Um, it was by Minara et al. and they looked at the masses of planets around sun-like stars and also the masses of disks around sun-like stars. And they found that there seemed to be more mass in the planets that you could ever expect to form given the masses we know are around uh, young forming, um, young planet forming disks around stars. So quite how we, these, these small planetary disks are able to form many more giant planets is, is kind of unexplained, but I'm sure in, there's gonna be a lot of theoretical work to try to explain this, this bizarre um, gap in our knowledge in, in the next couple of years. Yeah, but so basically there's way more mass in the planets than we would expect given the size of the disk. Yeah. Yeah, like seriously more. And it and it's it's true across like all uh, star sizes as well. Oh really? You said that they looked at just sun-like stars, so I was thinking I think about they that. didn't look at like N dwarfs, but it was like K to F stars. Yeah. I think what's been proposed is that maybe maybe planets are just really far more um, efficient at being formed than we currently have an understanding. So, um, so almost all of the dust mass in these disks is going to planets, and it's going into planets much more efficiently than than we 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 currently understand how that works. Um, right, moving from theoretical considerations to spectroscopy, there were a couple of papers on space-based spectroscopy. One from uh, Tom Evans et al., which which measured um, the atmosphere of WASP one two one a hot Jupiter, using um, the Hubble Space Telescope. And, well, Hannah, you won this paper. What did you find? 
So for, for this planet, what we were doing is we were using STIS in the optical to look at um, what we were looking for this evidence that we, we saw from the ground-based observations last year of this titanium oxide in the atmosphere, but we didn't find that. What instead we found was a very steep and very strong scattering towards the, the very blue near UV uh, parts of the, the optical. And that actually was more indicative of a molecule which was, was proposed back in 2009, HS. And we actually had to dig around in the brain uh, of some people uh, over in Northern California to see if we could dig out those optical properties of that material to, to fit to the, the spectrum that we got of the planet. So actually for, for these really hot planets, we might start to expect if we can get these measurements, which are quite difficult to do in that very blue optical, seeing the, the evidence of this HS material, these sulfur-based materials that we, we expect to be there but haven't seen before. Um, and this was a really nice evidence of that. So that's, that's what we found for 121. Does, does this disprove the, t the titanium oxide then? So what we found uh, back in 2016 with the observations that we made in the near-infrared with wide-field camera free on Hubble was that actually we see more evidence of vanadium oxide. And since then, we've been doing a number of theoretical studies, one of them led by uh, Jayesh Goyle in the UK, which show that at certain temperatures and under certain chemical and dynamic conditions, you would expect the TIO to disappear before the VIO, the, the VO, sorry, not VIO. Um, and that seems to be what we're actually seeing is this, this temperature transition uh, boundary between not having this TIA, so not seeing evidence for that, but still seeing evidence for this vanadium oxides, which was previously thought to kind of come hand in hand with each other. But we're actually seeing that there, there's a possibility of them occurring in these planetary atmospheres as very separate uh, entities. And that, that really depends on the dynamics, the temperature, and the condensation conditions in the atmosphere itself. So we're, we're learning a lot from 121. It's a very good planet for doing all kinds of studies, and there's a lot more to come, I can assure you. Interesting, thanks. And the second paper I mentioned was, um, I think Hannah was also on, from the PANSET program, which found hints of sodium and also a cloudy atmosphere in WASP-52. And there were, there were three papers um, based on machine learning this, this month as well, on machine learning and experiments, two of which came out of the, the workshop I was working at over summer, one of which I was involved in, which was kind of redoing um, a neural network-based classification of planet candidates in Kepler, and we managed to improve what was previously done to get something like 98% um, of like, correct classification of planets out of Kepler using these neural networks. And there were... There was another paper on atmospheric retrievals that came out of um, out of that FDL as well. And basically, these guys uh, they 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 used two hundred thousand dollars of Google resources to run um, a planetary spectrum generating tool three million times, which gave enough um, kind of fake spectra in order to run um, deep learning models to try and retrieve the spectrum that, and and the molecules that they put into this spectra. Um, in a faster um, kind of machine learning way. And, um, and they, they kind of gave this data set to the community as well, so anyone can use these models and to, to run their own retrievals, uh, hopefully in an in a easier and faster way in the future than, than the kind of slow retrieval process that we do at the moment. And there was another machine learning paper on basically 
doing the same as, as we did on classifying light curves, but with the WASP survey, so this ground-based survey, which has a, a, a lot of candidates but not many planets, and they were able to, um, to use machine learning to basically validate what was a planet and what wasn't using the, the ground-based data. Um, yeah, and that's all I've got for the news this month. Uh, did you guys have any points on those? Anything that I didn't make clear? Well, I mean, it's, um, it's not quite exoplanet news, but we have increased the population of Mars by, uh, by one <laughs> that is true. robotic explorer, right? Which is uh, always exciting. Yeah, I wasn't sure whether to put insights in or not, but it is certainly exciting. Yeah, I do like seeing things land on Mars. Yeah, nothing like a, a good viewing, viewing party oh, yeah. with, the, with the department to uh, yeah, remind me why we do science. <laughs> yeah, I know why we do it. It's, just, uh, I imagine, it's, it's always inspiring. I imagine it's kind of uh, less stressful when you're not directly involved in the mission. Right, like watching one of these landing. Oh, yeah, when bombs. you're involved in the mission, it's gonna be. That's why they're cheering and they're so happy at the end because <laughs> it's so stressful. It's just a con instantaneous like, oh crap! Thank God yeah. it worked. <laughs> this high proportion that your entire career's work is about to crash into Mars. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> well, no need to worry. Successful landing and um, yeah, everything seemed to go really well. So. Yeah, go inside. Um, so uh, for those of you who've never listened to the show for some reason, like where have you been? Uh, we'd like to end things off uh, with our long running effort to gather the galaxy's favorite, uh, most unique, most wacky planets into our own little exoplanet archive. Uh, so Jesse, as you're our guest this month, the honor falls to you. Uh, so what planet have you chosen and why? Ah, thank you. So my role, as we've discussed, is I'm a curator at the NASA Exoplanet Archive. So I see every planet that comes by and I'm reading AstroPH every day and pulling in all of the planets. Uh, so I'm going to go totally cheeseball on you right now and say that my favorite is the next one. Oh. I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm always excited by when I read AstroPH every day and see a new planet come and then I get to, you know, play with the data and get it all in and then I move on to the next one so my favorite is always the next one and do you do you have like slight biases towards what you hope the next one is like the size of the planet have you got any like type of planet that you really really love I know you mentioned at the beginning these mini Neptunes uh is that something that yeah, you're always yeah, yeah. looking to see so those are really interesting for I think the community as a whole because of K2138, which we talked about, the, the compact resonance systems like TRAPPIST-1 and K2138, those really capture my eye now because I'm just super interested in finding out like exactly how much they can constrain formation, timescales, and mechanisms. I think they're really cool and really information-rich. So I, I watch for those ones. There we go. Cool. <laughs> pull an answer out of you. <laughs> Personally, I, li I like that response. I, I went, ooh, and Hannah went, ah. So there was the, the exact two opposite. Well, that's pretty typical that. of us I mean, on Exoclass, I think. So. I think. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that means I hit exactly the right amount of cheese. Exactly. I'm all about that cheese. Because, you know, it gives you the option to, to hand wave about the next planet, right? So it's a, gr a great answer. <laughs> Astrobiologists I answer that. Oh, thank you, Hannah. <laughs> Take that as a compliment. <laughs> um, okay well uh, thank you very much for, for choosing the next planet um, and thank you for being on the show and giving up your time that's it's really very greatly appreciated uh, so thank you uh, thank you Jesse. thank you for having me yeah, yeah it's great to be on although I have to say when you approached me by saying you know more about exoplanets than the rest of us have forgotten I did make feel very old and make me want to say like you kids get off my lawn <laughs> sorry that was meant to be a compliment like I didn't want you to just think we were <laughs> did you get you on to talk about exocup and gifts 
so <laughs> right no oh we didn't even That's mention fine. like the gif game that you've got it's better than anyone's mm. I've ever seen it's strong well now that everybody else has discovered the twitter gif library i feel like you know the edge that i had has has diminished greatly. No, but there's still a choice there's options to be made and it's about selecting that right gif you know it can make or break the tweet yeah, don't always just That's select right. the top GIF. That's what everybody's doing right now. You're you're digging right in there. <laughs> yep, you've got to find that right keyword to get you exactly what you want. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us for another installment of Exocast. We will be back next month with more exciting exploration news and views. And I'll be joined by a special guest. Until then, you can check out all our previous shows on the website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cast and like us on Facebook. Until next time, bye. Bye bye. Bye, everyone. Goodbye, everyone. Exocast.